You're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I'm Billy Lennon. Today, we're talking with Emmeline Klein about her piece, Recipes, Rumors, and Reminiscence, a Literary Cookbook Gift Guide. And I'm joined by a special guest, co-editor of mine, Alana Pachras, who worked with Emmeline on this piece. We talk about opulence, decadence, intransigence, eating disorders, dinner parties, the list as form, stealing husbands, anti-fascist pasta, Italian futurism, what Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein ate during, before, and after the war, considerations of oysters, and Salvador Dali. Emmeline Klein's criticism, essays, and reporting have been published in the Yale Review, Vice, BuzzFeed News, and Berlin Quarterly, among other outlets. Her book, Deadweight, A Cultural, Political, and Personal History of Disordered Eating, is forthcoming from Knopf in February. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I am with Emmeline Klein today. Wait, time out. Is it Emmeline? Or it's Emmeline. It's Emmeline. But don't worry, oh. everyone, literally everyone does that. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Today I'm talking with Emmeline Klein about her piece, Recipes, Rumors, and Reminiscence, a Literary Cookbook Gift Guide. And I'm also joined by editor Alana Pakros, who worked with Emmeline on the piece. How is it going? Hello, it's, it's going fabulously. How are you guys? Doing well. Very excited to talk about this piece. Um, uh, I'm doing I well mean... too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear, I Billy. was really worried. <laughs> well, I'll I'll start I'll start it off because I am very curious. Um, so Emmeline pitched this piece to us, and I remember when you pitched it, you were like, "This is so weird and zany. It might just be a fit for us." And I was like, "Yeah, it totally is." Um, but I think Billy and I both want to know how you came up with the idea for this, how you found these books, um, since most of them are. Like, I feel like the most recent publication of any of these is like, what, the 80s or something? Yeah. Basically, I, the one that I actually, I think I put it first, um, the Caroline Blackwood and Anna Hickraft book, I've just been obsessed with forever. Um, For anyone who really hasn't read the piece, it's a cookbook slash like kitchen gadget guide oddly uh called darling you shouldn't have gone to so much trouble by these two sort of socialite and writer british women and uh i've found it a few years ago uh because one of the co-authors caroline blackwood is an incredible novelist and journalist and also sort of a husband thief she famously stole uh elizabeth hardwick's husband robert lowell and then was with him for a few years and then he was actually leaving her to go back to Elizabeth Hardwick and died in the cab to Elizabeth Hardwick's Upper West Side home. She went downstairs to get him and he was in the cab clutching a Lucian Freud, one of Caroline's prior husband's portrait of Caroline and was also dead. So that story got me really interested in her as a person because I heard about that. Then I started reading her novels, which are just these like very like creepy acerbic kind of socialite noirs. Um, And then once I finished those, I was just sort of like, let me get really into this woman's life, found out that she'd made this cookbook, bought it on one of those weird like thrift book websites and just thought it was like one of the most iconic things I've ever found because the beginning of it is just like 
uh, we know women are supposed to be enlightened these days, but we also like still need to be really good party hosts. But like, how are we really supposed to do that if we're supposed to like have jobs? Because then when are we going to cook? And also when I get home, I want to drink. So I need to be drunk. So I don't know how I'm supposed to like focus on the cooking. So I'm just going to collect <laughs> sort of recipes that seem complicated, but actually take 30 minutes or under. And they collected them from like all of their like friends from the like this like London bohemian scene. So you've got like, Francis Bacon's mayo recipe and like a princess's salad and things like that and it's all just written in a really stylish way and it's like really funny and has really cool illustrations and I was obsessed with it for a while and I've always wanted to write about it but couldn't really think of how and then this holiday season I was kind of seeing the gift guides trickle out and I was like I feel like I was seeing like book literary gift guides and I was like I bet there have to be like a bunch of weird ass cookbooks and I'd seen I knew of the Alice B. Toklas one because that one's kind of famous uh she was, she was Gertrude Stein's partner and she did this cookbook of everything her and Gertrude Stein would eat like during the war and before the war and after the war and etc and so then I just started googling around and sort of collected a few of the other ones also because I do love to patronize those a books thrift books weird websites and get the like chic little out of print editions then I had them together and was just sort of like I do feel like this could be really fun. So I wrote to you guys because go to spot for when something's going to be like weird for me. Totally. Um, and yeah. yeah, just real quick. Sorry. Yeah. Just for people who haven't read the piece. I mean, it's kind of inherent in what you were saying, but uh, just to quote you in your intro, well, like the structure is like, there are five like mini reviews and pitches to like potential buyers or whatever about like five like really weird cookbooks and then the actual like pro like pros about each of the cookbooks they're experiments in autobiography gossip columns avant-garde practical jokes literary scene reports well the cookbooks are uh love letters cookbooks cum charisma vehicles from across the 20th century and you just you you take each of these books as an occasion to just um yeah obviously like you're 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 playing with th this this form of like the gift guide or whatever to yeah I mean I think just it's write about five books that would like never normally get written about in in this way so totally totally I feel like I feel like a lot of the time with those types of like with like the gift guide especially the book type ones and with any sort of like list format with books it's so like devoid of personality or like care and it's just like often you know, like three random sentences by someone who like probably actually didn't even read the book because they were like sent like 20 books by publicists and were like, wadi-da. So I was kind of trying to like invert that and be like, these are a bunch of books. I mean, the MFK Fisher, uh, Consider the Oyster and the one I was just monologuing about are the ones that I was the most passionate about, but like books that like nobody would really otherwise hear about at this moment. And also a chance to sort of, I'm very, uh, kind of addicted to turning pretty much any assignment into an occasion to do like mini biographical, critical biographical experimental experiments in writing. So, and I'm just really interested in how like weird, how writers sort of diverted themselves from their main projects and like their core craft and like ex sort of channeled their personalities into other forms of creativity and also like collaborative things, which cookbooks kind of inherently are sort of like a artifact of a friendship because you're collating it from people's you've had a dinner party with or whatever um 
So I thought it was like, that made it even more fun to put the books in conversation with each other. Cause often you'd like between that, like Alice B. Tocos and Gertrude Stein and Caroline Blackwood and Anne Haycroft had like overlapping friends and MFK Fisher, like knew some of the people Salvador Dali did. So there's a lot of kind of fascinating little internecine drama there that you could riff on. I feel like it would be so fun to have a party based on one of these cookbooks where you like make the cocktails and snacks oh, from for sure. them. <laughs> for sure. Um, and I, I am a horrible cook and I do need a cocktail. So I would have to be using the first one, but I'm, I've been considering it. So we should yeah. do it every day. I'll, I'll see you guys in a month. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> one of the questions I had, um, I was thinking, you know, as, cause I'm, I'm very excited to read your book. Um, and about some of your other work, which is about like women and obviously your book is about disordered eating and like this piece was all about like cooking and food. And I was curious if you like thought of it as an extension of your beat, so to speak, um, in regards to that, or if that even crossed your mind, or if that's just a weird connection that I'm making. No, no, it's not a weird connection at all. Cause it's obviously like why is this eating disorder girl pitching me the food books <laughs> or, not, or like, or like, yes, of course she is. Or also why is she? But I think, <laughs> I think like it, it does feel like an extension for me. And also like, so there's a quote in the piece from MFK Fisher. That's not from that book, Consider the Oyster, but she's a food writer and she's like a t- truly incredible pro stylist. And during her lifetime, people were always asking her like, why don't you write like the next great American girl novel or whatever. And she would be like, because to, she's the in the, in the quote is she's saying something like the core things about life are like food, sex, and love, or something like that, or like yeah, like, we need sustenance that's both emotional and physical. And so, to me, writing about food is sort of writing the great American novel or the great American poetry collection or whatever it is. Um, and I sort of, you know, feel that way too. And I think it's really interesting because. A, a really important thing for me with the book, which is kind of a political, cultural, economic history of eating disorders and also with a bit of memoir, was one of the reasons I wanted to write it is because I feel like eating disorders are so often deeply siloed into either self-help books or just straight memoirs and aren't like really treated as kind of a problem of living the way, or like a problem, a structural problem, either a problem of like human experience or a structural problem of capitalism, the way that other issues like depression or alcoholism or opioid addiction or other things like that are. And I think all of the things I just listed actually are just these sort of like phenomena of the human, you know, impulse to yearn and food because it's so kind of natural to us, but also so fraught for with like questions of health, questions of appearance, et cetera. Like it, it kind of gets, and it's also just maybe less sexy than other addictions. I don't know. Gets like not treated with as much kind of intellectual uh, heft. I don't know. And so I think in all my work, I kind of want to try to treat the way that we nourish our appetite for food in the, with the same kind of close attention and care and assumption that it's kind of existentially meaningful as I would bring to our appetite for love or our appetite for 
any other a type of attention or a craving to for intoxication or something. Um, I'm rambling, but does that somewhat? Yeah, no, yeah. no, it definitely does. And I also, I, I won't try to get into the book too much because I know that we have um, a writer who's going to interview you about it for CRB. Um, but I definitely just think, yeah, also with disordered eating, just like sort of, you know, so much focus on food and like what people are putting into their bodies every day and that sort of thing. Um, it's interesting, but this also made me realize perhaps I should have known this before, but the title consider the oyster makes me think that David Foster Wallace's consider the lobster was not the first piece with that kind of title construction. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There was definitely something that we also really quickly, um, um, oh yeah, the other thing I was gonna say was I think like also because the book obviously has lighter moments, but it's very, uh, you know, emo and uh, depressing at times, but hopefully in a insightful way. It's a serious uh, topic, so that's Yeah, better. yeah, yeah. But I think this was like especially fun to do while I was like, now that I'm done with the book and I'm doing like more of the like, publicizing it and thinking about the ways in which I'm talking about it this felt like not to be just so cringe as hell but like a really like sweet way to like access this topic that has been so like fraught and painful for me in like a way where I'm like it's amazing to and and whenever I talk to anybody who's like in recovery from eating disorders like it is amazing when food can be both something that like you're able to nourish yourself with, but also something that's just fun and does, you can like make a weird freaky dish for a dinner party that actually like, you don't care if it even tastes good. You don't care how many calories it is. It has like nothing to do with this whole like question that has at one point consumed you of like how much nourishment you deserve and instead can be this like kind of pleasure forward and like social forward form of art that you do. I was just going to briefly say, that that also made me think that of course the oyster is like the pinnacle of luxurious food and like obviously aphrodisiac whatever but like I feel like the oyster too it's like people aren't necessarily eating oysters to like get full or or yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in my opinion they don't even I love them but with sauce like an oyster itself is not a necessarily like delicious thing in my opinion but it's fun to eat and it's kind of like an experience Anyway, well, I am coming to you live from New Orleans, where it is sort of like illegal to say that an oyster isn't. <laughs> I would argue that they are, but it is definitely a personal preference. But they're definitely not. Yeah, it's definitely not a full meal. Like something I love about this city is that it's one of the only places in the U.S. where I feel like there's like a put a pre, uh, adults put a premium on like socializing in their lives, and like friendship is like something that is paramount. And like the city is kind of organizes its rhythms around social occasions and I feel like an oyster is like an inherently social food because the the way in which they're served you mm -hmm. don't usually do, like it's it's something to share there's the aphrodisiac component there's the tactileness of doing it together there's like my grandfather was obsessed with them and would rank them in his journal every day when he would eat like a dozen at lunch and then like all, like it, it can be like you can think about this one creature that can come in so many different forms. Like every oyster you have tastes slightly different. And then also they come up with such innovative ways to cook something that at first seems so simple. And it just can like, I don't know, it's just a sort of beautiful human food art to me. Totally. Alana, did you have any uh, other like specific questions? If not, I kind of want to like ask some stuff like one by one with some of these books. <laughs> yeah, no, go for it. Go for it. 
Yeah. So how'd you find this futurist cookbook? <laughs> Let's okay, talk so about that for a little bit. That one is actually really fascinating because I, so I found that one in like a truly random bookstore in uh, like, that was like, it was like a stall kind of at uh, off like a flea market. And I had bought it because it like looked cool, the cover. And then I completely forgot about it until then I was coming back as I was describing at the very beginning of our recording when I was like, I was like thinking about how to write about Consider the Oyster and the Caroline Blackwood Anna Haycraft one. And then I was like, wait, I have this on a shelf. And then I went and opened it and was like, this is like truly one of the craziest things I've ever read. And then I looked into the guy more and the Italian futurist movement. And it's really fascinating. It's also kind of sad because like the guy is like a totally fascist misogynist, but he did kind of slay on a comedy level with this book and also on a like certain kind of poetics level as like, unfortunately many male fascists do. Um, But it's basically like, like one of the early, like basically, first of all, an interesting fact about this guy, uh, Tommaso Marionetti or whatever, is that he, had a bicycle, either a bicycle or a car accident, I'm not remembering, um, where he like went into a ditch and like hit his head. And then he got out of the ditch and was like, the old me is dead in a ditch. And like, I need to now become part of this, like, like found this, co-found this futurist movement, which is all about like sort of utopian kind of tech forward stuff. Like he would have, he thought that food could be used as it is in this book as like, an artistic expression and like a kind of satirical poetics, but he didn't really think that we should be like spend with that, like the strong Italians should be spending their time, like actually like on a daily level of like cooking and eating, he would have been like really into Soylent and stuff. Like he was very much, the whole futurist movement was very like one day our food will like be the will replicate the steam engine and like we won't have to Mm -hmm. it'll be the Jetsons or whatever and then like once in a while you can make your totally futurist banquet that's like making a statement um so anyway I just thought the book was crazy and I did have to like pick and choose when I was writing the things because you would be reading a part and it would be like going on to like a weird misogynistic diatribe and I'd be like okay let me just get to like the weird comic about like what poets should eat and how they should like eat salad with their hands. There was mm. an interesting also uh, like exhibit thing related to it at the Guggenheim in like 2014, I think I was reading um, where like a bunch of people did an installation where they like ate one of the insane kind of theatrical recipes where the people would wear, sat around with pajamas and like used sponges to like eat salads. So we should probably <laughs> find a video of that on YouTube. I really like the, uh, the call like Instructions for building food sculptures, and then I'll call for the abolition of pasta, which the will pasta free Italy is- from expensive foreign wheat and promote the Italian rice industry. No, the, the, <laughs> the pasta part is like ultimately like I would say a third of the book. And that was like also fascinatingly a real like he was like actually passionate about that. Like he also wrote like op-eds for like Le Figaro about it being like pasta is ruining Italian men's virility because like they're getting fat, like they're vibing out too hard with these like raviolis like they're not like prepping for war they're not like fucking their women like they're literally just hanging out with their boys and drinking wine and eating pasta and they like actually need to be having a soylent and like going to war (laughs) so this so pasta like 
like this was his Jordan Peterson fashion. Yes, movement. yes, yeah, yes. Because and he was also like super nationalistic, and so, he was like ultimately like Italy doesn't even have enough wheat fields, so like we shouldn't be buying this fucking wheat from somewhere else. It's awesome. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, man, I need someone to get me that book. You know, um, well, I can lend it. I'm to still, you. I'm still waiting for something to push me over the edge. Into your full Jordan Peterson mode. To my full fascist mode, yeah. Yeah. Well, keep lifting. Don't eat too much pasta, and don't oh, I'm not. because I'm so Veni Vidi beautiful. Yeah, bro, I'm gonna get Veni Vidi Vici tatted on my neck. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you should just uh, you should only you should only eat that uh, meal he has in there. That's like for poets so that they don't do artistic loitering. I liked that one. He was like, "This is what you should eat if you're like a depressed poetic man and like you're stuck artistically loitering and you're not being creative enough. You should like eat this instead." And it was like one like tulip petal with like a bacon on top or something that's great it's crazy how people have theories about specific foods like okay obviously an orange Mm -hmm. with vitamin c is like there's like science behind that like helping with colds or something but like you know what about people that say like endives or endives however you prefer to say it like help with long covid like people have a lot of theories about specific very specific foods and their their medicinal properties i think that honestly relates back to that quote about like the the mfk fisher quote about like our hunger for security and love and food it's like there are these like it's just so core to the human experience that it's like the food becomes these like talismanic objects and you end up associating like maybe you were just like on the up and up from your covid and you had an endive on dive endive at that time and then you're like forever associating it and then ultimately also going back to psychiatric drugs on it's crazy how much of our psychiatric drug industrial complex like is the placebo effect so like it's very easy it's like you know like that you might actually feel better after you eat an on dive if it worked one time because the placebo effect is so fucking powerful and often is what's happening with a lot of our psychiatric drugs for at least for some people like obviously yeah. they're working on something, but for a lot of people the placebo effect is having a real impact of course yeah. um I'm not dumb, so it doesn't work on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I have that. I have that problem too. I have that problem too. Also, with like therapy, I'm like, you're not going to convince me that I'm not horrible with your, with your little CBT. Right. You have to believe it too. Yeah. For it to work. What, one it's time, like my therapist. Religion. Sorry. One time, my therapist was just like, I, I was like feeling real down, and I was just like, me man, you know, man, I'm, I'm feeling really down, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, can I just describe to you like this really awesome guy I know? <laughs> Wait, and then what? he described you? <laughs> and just like described all the things that I do. And I was like, I'm going to kill you, man. Like, I hate this. <laughs> so funny. Did it work? That wouldn't, I don't think that would work on me. Uh, I mean, there's other shit that has worked. I think he, you know, I think loving is an act rather than a, uh, like a, a noun or whatever and he's shown that to me over a long period of time so that works but that was really fucking corny <laughs> in terms of loving like self-loving i think that no like therapeutic love you know mm-hmm. like he's kind of mm-hmm. shown that he's like put himself out there you, you know he's really dealing with yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that was very corny though. are you guys having an affair that sounded pretty romantic i mean historically you know, psychoanalysts and their yeah. analyst hands. Why are you guys making? Why are you guys making it weird? 
Yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Just to have a little fun. We're, I, we're really happy for you and your beautiful, healthy, therapeutic relationship. Yeah. Thank you. What was I going to say next? All right. That was the most for the boys cookbook. Um, for sure. <laughs> do we want to talk about Alice B. Topaz for a bit? Oh, yeah, sure. We can totally talk about the lesbians. Yeah, yeah. we haven't done that one yet. <laughs> it would be pretty homophobic if we didn't. Um, so I think she's actually like similar to MFK Fisher, a very fascinating figure that I admire a lot for the sort of refusal of traditional kind of literary careerism in terms of like formal, the hierarchy of forms. So like in the same way that MFK Fisher is like, I'm not going to let people tell me that just because like I'm a talented writer. I can't write about the subjects that actually interest me in the forms that actually uh, are generative for me, which for her were food writing and like memoir via food writing. Um, and like, like, as opposed to like the primacy of, you know, the novel or whatever. Uh, and I think with Alice B. Chokos, she does that by having like her, by writing this cookbook that also functions as like a memoir of their time in like France during the war and their time in like, these artistic circles before and after the war and also like an artifact of her romance and whatever. So there's that, but also I think she sort of fascinatingly refuses the notion that to be a partner to like a great, like to be a partner to a great artist and support them as she like famously did by like cooking all of Gertrude Stein's meals and buying all the groceries and keeping the house and stuff isn't actually its own form of artistic production. And I think that like, obviously I'm not saying that like you need like a partner that's like subservient to you to be a successful artist. Like that's just like how, it, that's not what I'm saying at all. But like, I think that in some partnerships in history that has clearly allowed some great artists to produce some great art. And I think there's a sort of interesting and positive for women and for feminism phenomenon of these like reclamation by both biographies and fictionalizations of like the wives so like whether that book recently that was like a biography of like George Orwell's wife or like when people like talk about like Nabokov's wife and stuff and like these women who because the partnerships were heterosexual like we assume that the women were being like forced into this role and like perhaps had like a great novel within themselves that they never got to write because they were doing all this housework and like that totally might be true and I think the phenomenon of talking about those women's lives and like the forces that led them to where they are is really important and useful. But I think what's interesting about this being a lesbian couple is that it sort of allows us to see the way that it is kind of like possible for this, like the partnership itself to be the creative product and a person to like, kind of be like, no, it's like, like because, uh, because there wasn't the like gender structure of dominance, there's an interesting way in which she can be like, no, it's my like agentative choice to make my art be making these fabulous meals, writing them down in an incredibly stylized way and like creating the atmosphere for this other, like modern, these other modernist creations. And it's not just like, because of like sexism that I'm a housewife, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's so interesting because there's also, I mean, you sometimes see though, um, I don't know when you were talking about that, I was also thinking obviously about Tar, um, and the relationship she has with her wife, which is ends up in these kind of gendered roles, so to speak, where Tar is sort of uh, the like 
you know, preeminent artist who like plays a bigger role in the relationship while her wife is sort of this like other musician in the background. Um, and also in Catherine Lacey's biography of X, there is like the similar dynamic, which I always think is interesting because it it is relationship between two women, but the two partners do somehow fall into these sort of stereotypically gender dynamics too you know right and I I think what what the like lesbianism of it all allows is that like is like a sort of recognition that sometimes those gender dynamics are horrible and oppressive and just really cruel and also sometimes our relationship is like emotionally abusive in some way that has nothing to do with the gender etc etc but there are also times uh like as I think this book reveals in which like our understanding of that supportive role is somewhat inflected by like our notions of careerism and like yeah always assuming that a person isn't like achieving true self-actualization if they don't have their own professional or artistic like goal and like that's just not how all humans are like you might not be interested in that and like that's just as like beautiful to me a way to like exist in society and interpersonally um but I also don't mean to at all sound like the uh, the wives should not be allowed to have their careers. They totally should. And I want them to. And also a real, one of my uh, great feminist crimes, besides perhaps what I just said, is that I actually did not see Tar or Barbie and only saw Oppenheimer like multiple times. Wow. That's... Wow. Is this really how you want to get canceled? On I know. That way? <laughs> I know. It's really Get crazy. your money's worth. Like, be like uh do something i did worse. not i didn't like lady ghostbusters also i didn't see that getting, yeah there you go that's <laughs> Wait, what getting your that? money's worth uh <laughs> there was, like, there I was feel a like girl bo- version of ghostbusters but i think a lot of people didn't like that yeah a lot of people didn't not like even that. that good i'll yeah. think of something more cancelable eventually yeah, yeah, yeah. but i'm starting small got you got you baby steps. and plus i'm looking forward to this party we have uh like Toklas writes like uh like about being hospitable during the war during a party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta we gotta buy two hands and hundreds of cigarettes for that party. It'll be great. Yeah, for sure. So she talks about that and she talks also about she the, she got that idea or like right as the war was starting, she was like, I have to go stock up because when I was growing up in San Francisco and it was the great like San Francisco fire or whatever, or like earthquake, I'm forgetting, and that's embarrassing, but some sort of disaster. She was like, my dad like ran out as like the city was like falling apart and was like, I have to go get 400 cigarettes because it seems like all the stores are going to be closed for a few months. And like, we need to have people over. And she was like, so kind of like my amazing dad. (laughs) Did he come back? He did come back. Okay. So broke going to the, going to buy some milk. Yeah. You know, the dad. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. He was like, woke. It was the, the, I'm gonna go buy 400 cigarettes. Yeah, the absent okay. dads that are gonna leave and abandon the family have, say they're gonna go buy milk, and the really devoted dads that are gonna raise sickening lesbian artists are like, "I'll be right back. I'm getting 400 <laughs> cigarettes, and I'm braving a fire to do it." That's awesome. Uh, Incredible. So let's touch on the last two. Then I feel yeah. like we should talk about the Dolly one first, actually, and then kind of and well, you talked about we kind of your... talked about the oysters. Yeah, I feel like we can just we can do Dolly. Okay, okay. How do you stumble across this one? Okay, so this one, I 
saw like I remember I hadn't read it until I actually started thinking about this piece but I had seen it mentioned at some like Dolly exhibit I had like seen it mentioned in like a plaque you know uh like that he did this and so then I found like an old used copy and uh it's like well like the really old ones are like collector's editions and are like thousands and thousands of dollars but they did a reissue in like 2016 or something recently uh that you can get used copies of for like a reasonable price and it's really fabulous highly recommend as a coffee table book if you want to if you need people to like have something to talk about when they're in your apartment um it's similar it has a certain bit of the futurist je ne sais quoi in that like it's very like funny and kind of surrealist and uh not super plausible for like applying to your life um but it has obviously beautiful like full dolly illustrations and also like certain of his paintings because he was really interested in food in his life a lot of his paintings engaged with food and also a lot of his kind of like performance the, a lot of the performance art aspects of his life involved food so like him and his wife once threw a dinner party that I mentioned in the piece that was also sort of a performance art they called it a surrealistic night in a surrealist forest and they it was a it was a fundraiser fun fact so that was cool for them uh for refugee artists and they basically invited a bunch of celebrities and had them dress up as characters from their own dreams and served food out of satin slippers um other uh, one time he like made a sculpture that was painting a bunch of bread um when he did a art piece where he had uh, for the new york world fair he had a bunch of nude models be covered in like bits of seafood and sort of stand around um and then one time he was giving a lecture at the Sorbonne and drove up in a Rolls Royce that he had just stuffed to the gills with cauliflower so basically he's very interested in kind of like using food in a kind of dreamlike weird way um to both I like you know in a way that kind of like mocks the seriousness with which kind of people were taking dinner parties around him kind of in the art world but also um I think to do the same kind of MFK Fisher thing we've been talking about of like taking food seriously as a vector of like humanity and of any type of art and of any type of kind of existential engagement with existence um but anyway so the book has over 100 recipes most of them would be really you'd be hard pressed to actually do but some of them are just like put out a piece of caviar and then like make out with someone like they'll be like like his whole the whole dessert section is like also about him like giving oral sex to his wife it's very fascinating and like it's it's like it's called I Eat Gala, which was her name is the English translation of the chapter title. And he does a lot of sort of sexual things in the book. Um, he, the appetizers, I believe, are like the, the sodomy section, sodomized plates or something. Um, but basically it's just like, it's very interactive. All of the recipes are like telling you to like do things at the same time. It's really fun. I'm reading as I like look over it and see meat jewelry. Yeah. I just think about like Lady Gaga reading this book. Oh my God. She I feel inspired. like she must have this book in her house. Yeah. She, she, she must. Right. Um, she definitely has one of the like first editions that are like $20,000. <laughs> yeah. That sounds about right. Though she doesn't wear shit like that anymore. Unfortunately. Well, yeah. Any closing thoughts guys? I feel like. You've kind of done it. I mean, I feel really proud of us because I think we really, you know, got 
existential around here. Yeah, this was great. Thank you guys. Uh, as um, far as like, as far as a, like, I think, I think to circle back to like one of your very first questions, like part of what I wanted to do when I was writing this was be like something that in the same way that we don't take that you wouldn't think that a cookbook could be like an artifact of literature or like a food memoir could be an artifact of true literature, but like many of these authors prove that it can, like the gift guide or the like roundup form is so trivialized. Like, can we do something like that actually sparks deep thought with it was something I was trying to do while also without losing the kind of like fun and pleasure of it, uh, which is sort of the same ethos I think a lot of these books have. And I think we kind of did that in this conversation too. Totally. Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely think this was inspiring as a list. Um, and, and yeah, I also, I would love to know, obviously we don't have affiliate links, but I would love to know if anyone has purchased these books after reading it. I, I mean, know. I kind of want this Dolly one for my There's got to be four freaks who did. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> well, they should, I hope those freaks DM me and thank me because I love to get dms so that's for the listeners and or subscribe to the cleveland review book. definitely and but yeah, also and and yes and yes yeah, subscribe totally yes, subscribe we were also doing uh, a kind of yes and ethos with this conversation yes yo it's Very it was fun point. it's fun having three people um these are really fun to do on a side note this is like yeah it's starting yeah, people seem to like them. I have a fun time. Project uh, Billy. Yeah, this is my one rogue thing now. You know, <laughs> it's, this is it's like really this is like dad in the uh, you know, like in the garage, like tinkering with some old hardware. It's like building. Are you a in cabinet. a garage? I see a bike. Uh no, I'm just in a room in my just a normal room in the basement. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, anyways, Emily, thanks so much. What's up? Oh no, nothing, nothing, nothing. Keep going. Oh, I was just going to sign off. Yeah, that's perfect. I was going to just say, what's the, what's your guys' sort of like sign off structure? Oh, there. just, Emily, thank you. <laughs> Thanks mm -hmm. so much for your time. Alana, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Billy, for organizing. Absolutely. This so anytime. Fun. This was so yeah. fun. Uh, I think I might like be going to a concert tonight. So I might miss book club, unfortunately. Mm, oh, okay. What are you guys reading? We read. Um, yes, I have a book club if you would like to join. Um, we read The Door by Bagda Saz. Oh, I have not read it. How was it? Wait, Alana, uh, how do you it, pronounce that last name? I, I said Sazbo, but I know that's wrong. That's a tough one, man. I was just joking it, with you. It's like, I have no idea. Oh, is it like a- If you put a gun to my head and made me try to pronounce it, I it's would It's like Olga Chuck or whatever. I also can't- Tukarchuk. Yeah. yeah. Or like Lasno Krasno Horkak. Did I sound like really like uh, conservative when I was talking about the fabulous wives supporting the husband? No, there no, was no, nothing. No, no, no okay. I have a very like, I I can tell if something's like, trust me, my ear is good. You you you're, no, you come you I come think off you as were, funny, and if you want me you to send it to you, to argument. To I think you were making a good argument. Against. No, I genuinely think I was just sort of thinking it as it was happening. So then, just now, I was like, hmm, was I being like trad wife? No, no, not at all. You were making a good argument that there can be power dynamics in relationships where sometimes 
like like that you know making food or whatever can be someone's own art and sometimes yeah I just like that, yeah I just, just like that the way we think about it can sometimes be over yeah and holding that position is not necessarily a no I was you convinced me okay, <laughs> this well, pod, the podcast is dialectical oh perfect you know it's, yeah. my favorite form <laughs> all right guys thank you so much Thank you so um, much for having me. I'll email um, you pulling, pulling up. Yeah, and... Emmeline, I hope this got you excited and like warmed up for your book stuff because I feel like you're probably. Oh, yeah. Bye. Bye. Deadweight. Bye. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Emmeline totally. Bye. Deadweight. You guys. February, order. Um, February 27th is when it comes February out. February 27th. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. Picked by Oprah. <laughs> yeah. But probably Oprah's intern, but yeah. De- <laughs> definitely. But, uh, um, you know, and then it'll be on Obama's year on reading list. Oh my God, we'll see. It would be so feminist of wow. him. Wow, that would yeah. that would we be know, probably we good know for he's sales. an ally. Yeah, we so we'll, well we'll see we'll see just how much he cares about women. He would have read Dead so Weight in the way he read Foucault. So true. Know? Yeah, in the like, way he hey. listens to Maggie <laughs> Rogers. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, we should hang out. Okay. Soon. Uh, for now. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Have Have an amazing concert. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, yeah. Bye. Bye. Have a good trip. Thanks again for listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Producer and artist A-Live of Cleveland's own Moomin Collective graciously provided the music we use for the intro, as well as the music you're listening to right now. We publish reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts online at clereviewofbooks.com about three times per week. We recommend signing up for our bi-weekly newsletter, a link to which can be found in the show notes, as we all adjust to a shifting social media environment. You can also purchase issues and merch, including hats, tote bags, and shirts in our online store. As I mentioned, the primary editor credit on this piece goes to Ilana Pakros, but I'd also like to shout out our other editors, including Zach Peckham, Bree Demanda, Michael Credico, Morgan Ford, Robert Giddings, Philip Harris, Helen Rauner, Angela Maniage, and Jacob Brooks.